Welcome to the class. I am actually recording this from home because I forgot to push record when I was uh, teaching this at Sunday school. So we'll start off. Um, the title is Neither Fundamentalism Nor Liberalism. And it might help by explaining what I mean by these terms. I'm not thinking in political terms, uh, but I'm more thinking in kind of broadly theological terms. Um, fundamentalism, we might think of as uh, the kind of movement that's going to make claims like, we believe in the Bible only, uh, and then that claim is carried out um, through these kind of unspoken, unacknowledged, unquestionable readings of Scripture. So the claim is Bible only, but the practice is actually uh, reading the Bible through a certain kind of, I don't know, set of criteria, um, a certain reading strategy that is never acknowledged, uh, which leads to, typically in fundamentalism, this would lead to uh, making some doctrines or practices uh, binding that may not need to be binding, uh, might, may, might uh, result in making things that should be kind of on the periphery uh, into the center. Uh, so for example, uh, since many uh, at Otter Creek who might be listening to this come from a Church of Christ heritage, um, fundamentalism might show up in churches of Christ through the claim, the Bible only, that then would get practiced by uh, the way that many of us perhaps are familiar with how churches of Christ read the Bible, although they say the Bible only. There's this kind of strategy where we're going to highlight and prioritize these texts in the New Testament and not even those other texts in the New Testament. Um, and it's going to lead us to make some things necessary that may not be necessary, like a cappella worship or the proper mode of baptism. Um, outside of Churches of Christ, fundamentalism might show up, like in a Baptist denomination, in a uh, particular view maybe of the rapture or a particular way of having to read the creation account in Genesis. Um, uh, it might show up in saying things like, uh, you can't drink alcohol, or you have to use the King James Version, uh, you have to vote Republican, uh, whatever it might be. It's, it's taking things that aren't necessarily central, uh, or aren't necessarily necessary, and, and making them bigger and more binding uh, than they otherwise might be. And um, if you kind of step back and look at how this works, it makes sense. If if what your claim is that you're reading the Bible only, that's your authority, is the Bible. But you never acknowledge that there is a kind of reading strategy by which the Bible is read. Uh, then what your way of reading the Bible is going to lead you to certain beliefs, perhaps, uh, about baptism or about worship or about alcohol or whatever it might be. And because it's never been acknowledged that you're reading the Bible in a particular way to get there, the assumption is, is that your reading of the Bible is identical with the Bible itself. So uh, that means that all of your ways of reading the Bible are seen as equally binding and authoritative. So if someone disagrees with you about the rapture or about acapella worship or about... Um, you know, alcohol or whatever it might be, the the response from a fundamentalist is not to say, well, it looks like here uh, we read the Bible differently, um, and that's why we come to different conclusions. Instead, it's more like, oh, you are not submissive to the authority of the Bible. So there is this kind of confusion between the Bible 
and how the Bible is being read. Um, and then that leads to making things binding that not, might uh, not need to be binding, making things seem central uh, that might not need to be central. On the other uh, opposite end of the spectrum, you might say, would be theological liberalism. Now, this is not the same as lowercase l, liberal Christianity or progressive Christianity that has its different versions in Churches of Christ. The liberals uh, might be those who, I don't know, have instrumental worship or who let women talk during communion, whatever it might be. That's, that's not what liberalism, as we're talking about in this class, capital L liberalism is about, uh, for our purposes, thinking about where one locates authority. And for capital L liberalists, um, authority is not located in scripture nor in uh, church tradition. So um, what this ultimately kind of defaults into then is that the ultimate authority is going to be something like uh, the movement of culture. Um, liberalism, I think, typically has attached to it this belief of the inevitable progress of culture. So wherever culture is going must be progress. It must be good. And so rather than being uh, hamstrung uh, by the traditions or the scriptures or whatever it is, the sacred writings of the past, um, one is always looking uh, to move in line with where uh, culture is moving because wherever culture is going must be ultimately good. So by the Bible and tradition at best are kind of there for maybe some encouragement or a little inspiration, but not for authority. So if you're dealing with a controversial issue and you're coming from a fundamentalist position, uh, you're going to likely uh, grab some proof text. You're going to read them in a way that you're not going to acknowledge is a kind of particular way of reading them. Uh, and then you're going to come to a conclusion that you see as binding and authoritative and unquestioned. If you're a liberal, you're not going to be as concerned with what scripture or tradition says. Uh, and you're going to look at where progress is going and align yourself accordingly. So if you're in church and you've got fundamentalists and liberals in the same church and you have a controversial issue come up, they're going to deal with this by talking past one another. Uh, there's going to be one group talking about uh, what feels right, uh, where culture's going, uh, what the kind of progressive thing to do is, um, which seems to be the obvious way to go from their perspective. And fundamentalists are going to be saying, no, we, you know, uh, hold on to the authority of the Bible, and the Bible must mean this because there's only one right way to read the Bible, uh, and therefore uh, this is truth. And then kind of irony of ironies, uh, not only might liberals and fundamentalists talk past one another, but fundamentalists and fundamentalists might talk past one another because uh, you have fundamentalists from different um, kind of persuasions, both thinking they're reading the Bible only with their unacknowledged uh, ways of reading scripture. And so they both think that they're the ones being most faithful, most faithful to scripture, um, uh, where the rival fundamentalists are those who are coming in with an agenda or reading with some sort of bias. Anyway, so this is what, what I'm trying to suggest in this class is that there are, there's a better way to approach scripture, a better way to approach these complicated issues uh, that we face. Um, C.S. Lewis writes, if you ask for something more than simplicity, it is silly then to complain that the something more is not simple. If you ask for something more than simplicity, it is silly then to complain that the something more is not simple. So uh, in this class, we are going to try to move beyond simplicity. 
no easy answers, no quick little proof text or platitudes, uh, but we're going to try to get into uh, some of the messiness of this and realize that sometimes there aren't easy answers or sometimes we have to work hard to get uh, to what seems to be uh, the best answer or the best solution to these issues. Um, in this class, uh, we'll look at the topics like uh, how do we understand hell? What about free will versus predestination? Uh, what about women in ministry or divorce? Uh, how do we make sense of science and faith? Uh, how do we navigate the, the kind of difficult issues associated with LGBTQ? Um, and what about just war and pacifism? So these are, are some of our uh, the topics for this class. And these will function maybe something like case studies uh, or, or training grounds for us to, to learn how to navigate complex issues uh, in ways that are faithfully Christian that don't lean into a kind of simplistic fundamentalism, kind of uncritical fundamentalism, or a simplistic kind of uncritical liberalism. Uh, but instead, try to, um, try to be, we're going to try to be informed by what is kind of best of our Christian heritage. Kind of looking at how our mothers and fathers and the faith uh, might have navigated these issues, tapping into that kind of wisdom uh, so that we might do so in ways that are faithfully Christian. Uh, I have a a strong sense of the need for something like this for my for my work. At, I guess starting my ninth year now as a professor, um, and I'm sensing a a shift among students and even among their parents. A kind of shift in the younger generation. That strangely enough, it's not. Uh, it's almost like there's a trickling up instead of a trickling down. Where what's true of the younger generation is becoming true of of generations um, ahead of them as well. So I was asked recently to to give a little talk um, for our student life group, uh, and so I wrote this. So I'm going to read you just a portion of it, but it gives you a, a sense of my my heart, my concern in all of this, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about maybe a better way forward. So here's what I wrote. Sometimes I wonder if I'm the only one hearing the alarm bells going off. Every year it becomes clearer and clearer to me that students and their parents know less and less what Christianity is and what it is not. What makes this particularly distressing is that this is becoming tr true of students who've grown up in church their whole lives. To be sure, such, such students can tell me how nice Jesus is and how loving God is and how Christianity or how Christians should be good people. They likely even have some personal stories about how they felt God leading them to this decision or that opportunity. At first glance, none of this is concerning. In fact, it seems like something to celebrate. Nice students who have a cozy relationship with God? So why am I troubled? It's not that I have a problem with believing that God is love, that Jesus is merciful, that Christians should be good, or that God's gentle hand can help guide our lives. I can give a hearty amen to all that. My problem is that such ideas have become disconnected from the very framework that supports them and gives them meaning. Our Christian convictions about the nature of God and humanity are founded upon central confessions, such as the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I say God is love, this conviction is supported by God's demonstration of love in creating and taking on flesh and suffering and dying on behalf of sinful humans. When I say, God is love, 
I cannot define love in whatever sentimental way I desire. Instead, love derives its meaning, its very definition, from the concrete demonstration of God's costly, cruciform, merciful love. What worries me is that students are saying the same words, God is love, but in a way that is less than Christian. For many of them, God's love is not based on foundations like the Trinity, the Incarnation, or the Crucifixion. It's instead based on something more like a feeling, a hunch. And they're mostly oblivious to the extent to which their culture has shaped these feelings and instincts. And they're oblivious about how fragile such a foundation is. Moreover, they are not primarily defining love by God's concrete acts revealed in Scripture. Rather, love is being defined for them by pop culture sentimentality. A God who doesn't get bent out of shape about sin, but who just wants you to be true to yourself and follow your dreams because you're just about perfect the way you are. Those parents out there, you've probably heard this in every Disney movie your kids have watched, every TV show moral uh, that they have viewed. Richard Niebuhr, about 80 years ago, described a similar kind of watered-down Christianity. A God without wrath brought humans without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I'll say that again. A God without wrath brought humans without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. For me... What Niebuhr is describing is so obviously not Christian. It's so obviously a distortion of the gospel. It's so obviously not good news to all people. But for many of my Christian students, I'm not sure they would even recognize there was a problem with telling the Christian story in this way. The default spirituality of our students, uh, not our students, but of, of this younger generation, Uh, would seem to be characterized, as some have called it, as moralistic, therapeutic deism, or MTD. kind of sounds like a sexually transmitted disease, but moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is the mold that is subtly and profoundly reshaping American Christianity. So how might we characterize it? Well, as you listen, you'll probably hear that it's not that it's 100% wrong. In fact, there there are parts of moralistic therapeutic deism that sound quite Christian. The problem is that it lacks foundation and, and is, is um, getting some fundamental things out of order. So, characteristics. Moralistic. By this I mean there are right ways to act and wrong ways to act according to this kind of spiritual framework uh, that many of our kids are leaning into. Being a good person is something to strive for, but There's no explicit authority that determines which things are good and which are bad. No appeal to scripture or the state. Instead, we should all just know these things. So, uh, this spirituality is moralistic in that there is good and bad. It's not nihilism. There is real good and real bad. However, if you ask someone uh, who kind of subscribes to this, how do you determine what's good and bad? It's kind of a question mark. Uh, It's not clear. You're just supposed to know these things. And... What's not acknowledged is that uh, what is ultimately shaping it is, is whatever the kind of wave of culture is at the time. So that's the moralistic part. It's therapeutic. So MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's therapeutic. 
and that's the spirituality of this generation. They believe that spirituality should help us feel better about ourselves, our failings, our anxieties, our guilt. Plus, spirituality should help propel us to achieve our true potential. Uh, it provides hope that good people, which most everyone is, will go to heaven, and really bad people might have to face some form of retribution. So it's therapeutic. Finally, moralistic therapeutic deism is deistic. So this isn't the deism associated with the God who winds up a clock and lets it run, never tinkering with it again. This is the type of deism where God interacts with a light touch, offering some comfort, some assurance, a little bit of peace, maybe some inner guidance, and perhaps orchestrating some serendipitous career or dating opportunities. But God's, in, in this deistic framework, God's not really doing anything drastic like taking on flesh and dying. And he's not doing something like inspiring authoritative scripture. And his Holy Spirit doesn't need to reside in humans because, according to MTD, humans are not that broken or enslaved to sin. Instead, we are masters of our own lives. It's like what C.S. Lewis calls Christianity in water. It's not 100% wrong or completely anti-Christian. Uh, but there is something problematic about it. And this, as I said, is, is what I'm sensing that that is not only true of this younger generation, but is becoming true of, of the older generations as well, as the kind of default spiritual system. So when we, when we think about these eight topics that we're going to discuss today... Um, or maybe let me back up here. It is through having conversations with people about these kinds of eight topics that has clued me in about how many people are essentially um, uh, operating within this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic framework. So it, it shows itself when you're like, well, how, how should we navigate the issue of hell or LGBTQ issues or women in ministry? And then when you see that the response is not... Uh, something to do with scripture or tradition, uh, but is more uh, about this kind of therapeutic feeling or what's obviously right. So you hear the moralistic, the therapeutic piece of that, uh, or the deistic piece. God, surely God doesn't really care about whatever it is. This is telling me that 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 this kind of framework, um, no one's going around saying I'm a moralistic therapeutic deist, but this this um, influence. Uh, is, is showing itself um, among many young Christians. So what, what's a better way of dealing, uh, of, of living faithfully Christian if it's not fundamentalism, and nor is it liberalism? And liberalism is primarily going to show up in this kind of moralistic, therapeutic, deistic way. What's a, a better solution? Well, if you've been following uh, the classes uh, this last year, um, I, uh, along with Lauren White and Matt Hearn, taught a class on the biblical plotline and followed that up by a class on the rule of faith. And I see this as kind of the third class that, that's, uh, that follows from the previous two. That is, we need to be rooted in the biblical plotline, uh, the larger sweep of Scripture, not just some proof text, but the larger sweep of Scripture to help us um, make sense of who God is and what God is doing and how these individual topics might uh, fit into that framework. Uh, and we also need to be rooted in something like the rule of faith 
or which we, we looked at through uh, the Apostles' Creed. That is, um, this concise confession of faith uh, that has uh, been with the church basically from the beginning. Um, kind of the, the things that churches, the church has always recognized across the centuries, across the cultures, across the denominations. These are foundational uh, kind of beliefs and ideas. So that's what we've done. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't before, because that will be necessary going forward uh, as we look uh, soon at these, um, at these eight topics um, as we go forward. Um, so, so if, if we're going to take on these eight topics, um, what does that look like? Or what might be our strategy? Well, before I, I label a, a better strategy, let me show you, or let me maybe name the unhelpful strategies uh, that we might uh, see, which are reflective of uh, fundamentalism or liberalism, or maybe some bizarre combination of both. So one bad strategy uh, for navigating difficult theological issues is to go to the proof text, by which I mean pulling individual verses um, out as kind of the the answer to all the the questions. So, um, uh, the other another poor uh, strategy is to appeal to some sort of vague platitudes, um, and then another poor strategy is to appeal primarily to feelings. So let me let me show you how this might play itself out with an example that many might be familiar with. Uh, let's take the issue of uh, women and leadership in the church. We're going to go in much greater detail in this, but for our purposes, uh, we've seen this perhaps practice in unhealthy ways um, as we navigate this. And some churches start, or some <laughs> um, one unhealthy example would be by starting with proof text. Uh, and what happens when you take proof text and you don't you don't hear the scripture within its context, whether it's context and the literature, the kind of literary context, or it's context in the plot line of scripture, it can be misheard and distorted. Uh, but this is, this is what happens. Uh, so, um, and what ha you get this kind of irony in which proof text is um, uh, competing with proof text. So even in this women in ministry, Paul ironically gets proof texted against himself. So someone can say, um, uh, Paul says that a man, uh, excuse me, a woman should not teach or have authority over a man, as though that's kind of the answer. Boom. Uh, and then the other, someone else, maybe from uh, a different fundamentalist persuasion, will say, oh yeah, well, uh, Paul says that um, there is no more uh, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male and free male. Boom. We shouldn't care about uh, distinctions. Uh, so the proof texting thing doesn't work. We should be aware of that. Uh, what about appealing to vague platitudes. Uh, and so this looks like uh, someone will make some kind of platitude claim, and the meaning behind this platitude should be self-evident to all clear-minded, righteous, and God-fearing people. So in this case, the vague platitude, God is love. The self-evident meaning to all God-fearing people should be a loving God wouldn't keep a woman from using her leadership gifts. In other words, uh, for you to say no means that you don't believe God is love or vague platitude uh, in response. Oh yeah, well, God created males and females different on purpose. And the self-evident meaning behind this vague platitude should be, we must honor these distinct differences with different ministry roles. Um, 
And then if that doesn't, if proof texting doesn't solve it and vague platitudes don't solve the problem, uh, we might appeal to what is just. I just feel that men are better leaders. Oh yeah? Well, I just don't think God would want to stifle her gift. Oh yeah? Well, I just don't connect with a woman preacher. Oh yeah? Well, I just think it's time the church moved into the 21st century. So uh, this kind of appeal to emotion, to my feeling, to my instinct. So none of these three approaches, proof texting, platitudes, uh, appeal to one's own kind of feelings, uh, gut instincts, is sufficient for the conversation. Now, is there a place to appeal to scripture? Yes, but not through this kind of piecemeal proof texting. Uh, is there a place to appeal to something like uh, serious platitudes, uh, like the love of God? Yes, but it needs to have some kind of thickness, some sort of context to it. Is there a place to bring in our own kind of gut instincts about something? Yes, but our gut instinct is not authoritative. Sometimes our guts are wrong. Sometimes our feelings uh, are simply off base. So they might have a seat at the table, uh, but they do not have the head seat at the table. So what might a better strategy look like? Well, last um, over the last year, um, we looked at... Uh, we started by looking at the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And so in the Wesleyan quadrilateral, it's this kind of four, um, four pieces, uh, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And uh, the, what I like about the Wesleyan quadrilateral is it's tapping into uh, the wisdom of, of uh, our Christian ancestors. These are the kind of things they would appeal to. The limitation of the quadrilateral, though, is that it's easy to be misapplied or misunderstood if someone doesn't have some sort of training in how it's historically been practiced or how it's meant to be practiced. So, with, uh, for instance, um, if one doesn't understand the quadrilateral, they may, they may mistakenly believe that all four of these elements, scripture, tradition, reason, experience, are equally weighty. When they are not, um, scripture is definitely seen as stronger than, for instance, experience. Or uh, it may give the impression that uh, tradition, the, the tradition part of the, the quadrilateral, uh, it may give the impression that all tradition is equally binding. It, it's not. Uh, there are some traditions that are seen as having greater authority, particularly like we get in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. That is, those traditions that, that the church has come together early on and wrestled with and agreed on kind of cross-culturally, uh, these kind of foundational claims, those capital T tradition are much more weighty than lowercase t tradition, which is something like um, uh, less agreed upon ways that the church has, has navigated this. Um, and also the quadrilateral might give the mistaken notion that scripture and tradition and reason and experience can all kind of operate in isolation from one another. But in fact, they all kind of uh, operate together. Um, so uh, scripture... Um, we use our reason to help us uh, understand Scripture. Uh, we come to Scripture with certain kind of experiences that are going to shape the way we read. Uh, tradition is going to help us navigate Scripture. It's going to help us understand things like the Trinity. Um, so uh, what then I've tried to sketch out to help us uh, make sense of the quadrilateral is a kind of theological map. And this is what I'm going to be turning to for the rest of this semester uh, to help us uh, with these eight topics. So uh, in this theological map, we might think of it as having four concentric circles. At the 
At the center of these concentric circles would be what we might consider central or foundational doctrines. The next bubble out would be things that are necessary. The next circle out would be uh, flexible areas. And the next outside of that would be that which is outside of uh, Christian faith and practice. So to give an example, uh, something that is central or foundational, um, these kinds of things are, ba are primarily what God does. Uh, these are uh, foundational claims uh, apart from which Christianity is no longer Christian. So we might think one of these foundational claims would be the incarnation, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is central. Christianity is built on this central claim. The next concentric circle out that would build on this would be that which is necessary. In this case, it might be a human response to that. So we might think because of what, um, what Jesus, uh, who Jesus is and what he has done, it is necessary uh, that we respond in faith. And one of those responses might be, um, as the church has discerned, uh, that we participate we kind of embrace the death and resurrection of Jesus through practices, through sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper, or also known as the Eucharist. So uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper are not the foundation. Instead, they are built on the foundation of what Jesus has done, and they are necessary responses to that as discerned by uh, a close reading of Scripture and church tradition. What might be flexible then by flexible, kind of this next range out, so you go central, necessary to flexible. Flexible would be where there's a limited range, hear the word limited, a limited range where Christians might agree to disagree. So if we're thinking baptism in the Eucharist, there might be a flexible range for how Christians uh, practice uh, baptism, immersion, or sprinkling, or how Christians uh, practice the Eucharist, one cup, multiple cups. So central, foundational, incarnation, death, and resurrection. Necessary, baptism in the Eucharist. Flexible, the exact practices of baptism in the Eucharist. And then the next concentric circle out would be that which is outside the Christian faith. In this case, it would be to deny the reality of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, or to deny uh, that we should practice things like baptism and the Eucharist. Um, so I'm not going to defend all that here, but I, I hope uh, this kind of gets where I'm going with these concentric circles. So the question then might be, uh, which should be, uh, how does one determine then what is central from what is necessary, from what is flexible, from what is outside? Is that just uh, up to anybody? And I would say uh, absolutely not. There are, um, there are uh, maybe guideposts uh, that help us uh, with this theological map, uh, a north, south, east, west, perhaps. Uh, and so here are four guides that can help us make sense uh, and discern what is central, what is necessary, what's flexible, what's outside um, as, we, as we kind of walk uh, this Christian walk. So these four guides would be uh, first, the biblical plot line. I've already mentioned this. As I said, we did the, a whole class on this. So understanding how uh, God's work of, of creation uh, to uh, the experience of the fall, kind of decreation to the incarnation and resurrection, to um, uh, what we're looking forward to, uh, to new creation, the new heavens and new earth. So how God has been operating with his people and guiding them along the way 
we need to have a sense of that larger story so we know how to make sense of the smaller pieces along the way. So if we go back to the, the topic of women in ministry, um, this would mean that we should be asking questions, not just can we pull out a proof text about what Paul said, uh, but how, how um, do we understand the male and female dynamic from creation? And then what happened with the fall? And how did Jesus respond and, 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 um, and engage with males and females? And how did the early church uh, experience uh, male and females in leadership? And how is this going to be reflected uh, in the new heavens and new earth? How does that kind of, um, how, how does that plot line then help us to make sense of the larger, um, the, the issue uh, within this larger context? So rather than just trying to pull out a proof text, uh, we go to the next, not only the second step, which would be hearing that proof text in its larger context, but also hearing that proof text within its larger context, within the even larger context of the plotline of Scripture. So, one guide in this theological map is the plotline of Scripture. Another guide is the rule of faith. Uh, as I've already mentioned, this would be something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that capital T tradition uh, that has been with the church from the beginning, basically, that, is, that has stood the test of time across centuries and across cultures, across denominations. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing where you say, it seems uh, pretty certain that the Spirit has been at work preserving that kind of capital T tradition to help guide the church. Uh, the next guidepost, so we've got the biblical plot line, the rule of faith. The next one would be uh, the expectation that Scripture should lead to the love of God and love of neighbor. So Jesus says all of the law and the prophets, and I think we could even extend that to saying all of Scripture, uh, depends on those two commands, love God and love neighbor. Now, as I've said, these aren't kind of vague, um, define however we want, you know, make love a sentimental thing. We understand love in its robust biblical sense, but when we read Scripture well and we navigate difficult issues, it should lead us to love of God and love of neighbor, as Jesus taught. And lastly, of our four guides, biblical plotline, rule of faith, love of God and love of neighbor, we would have the coherency of Scripture, um, or coherency of the canon. So by this, um, I am referring to the expectation that there is a, a basic unity that runs throughout Scripture, where there's not going to be uh, extreme conflict between the various teachings that we find in Scripture, but that there is a, an overall kind of unity. And um, because of this, we can, ex we can cautiously, cautiously apply the ancient maxim that says the clearer text should help us interpret the less clear text. Now, of course, as I said, we have to be cautious because it's sometimes not always clear what's clear and what's not. Um, what's, one, uh, what's a clear scripture to one may not be a clear scripture to another. But nonetheless, there is this sense that overall, we should discern a basic unity. And that basic unity can help us see that, you know, there are some, some teachings and some ideas that are so foundational, it's obviously central, uh, that are so expected that they're obviously necessary. And at the same time, there are some that just are not clear, and so it would seem to be that they are flexible. So those are the, the four guides uh, within our concentric circles that, that help us navigate these concentric circles. Biblical plotline, the rule of faith, the love of God and the love of neighbor, and the coherency of Scripture. And then uh, lastly, um, kind of tying all of these pieces together, 
to help us as we apply, you know, let's apply some sort of topic or issue. How, how do we make sense of women in ministry? How do we make sense of the LGBTQ issues? So we take those four guides uh, and then we bring in these six tools. Um, and the six tools that I'm going to that I'm going to offer um, can be uh, remembered using the acronym SEARCH. S E A R C H. So SEARCH. So S is the spirit. If we're going to try to make sense uh, and try to think theologically, we need the guidance of the spirit to understand the revelation of the spirit. We need the guidance of the spirit. And here, I'm not saying we just kind of like focus in and meditate and wait to get this aha moment that is somehow authoritative. But, but part of it is, is that we recognize that we are sinful and that we are hard-hearted and sometimes we need the Spirit of God to soften our hearts and to open our eyes and to unclog our ears uh, so that we might hear Him working. E stands for experience. We need to attend to the experience of people uh, who agree and disagree with us. Uh, so, if we're talking women in ministry, we need to hear women and men on both sides of this issue. What's their experience? What are the difficulties? What are their convictions? Again, not because these are in themselves authoritative, but because they are helpful in the discernment process. Um, and this becomes, this will I think become clear as we navigate the uh, LGBTQ issues, that we need to hear, for instance, from uh, Christians who identify as gay, who, who have sensed that celibacy is what they're called to. But we also need to hear from, um, from those who are gay who have tried to uh, live faithfully and have found themselves in deep and dark depression, sometimes suicidal, as they've tried to, to deal with this and, 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 um, and based also on how the church has responded to them. So, so that, again, these aren't going to make some sort of authoritative claims upon us, but they are going to help us in the discernment process. Um, so the next letter, so that's S, E, we're on A. So A would be for ancestors. We listen to our ancestors in the faith. So in our, uh, our four guides, one of them is the rule of faith. That's like the capital T tradition. This A for ancestors would be like lowercase t tradition. How has the church, you know, across different denominations um, uh, navigated certain issues? And, and, and what we might discover is, you know, the church has almost unanimously agreed uh, uh, you know, that this particular way is the right way across denominations. Um, and that carries a certain weightiness as though, oh, wow, the church has, has across denominations always thought something like this? That's that's means something. Or we might discover as we're paying attention to our ancestors in this kind of lowercase t tradition, you know what, the church has never been unanimous about this. And so maybe this is an, this could clue us in that perhaps this is one of those places where we should have some flexibility some uh, willingness to agree to disagree on a limited range of what this looks like in Christian faith and practice. So S-E-A, we're at R, is reason. Uh, we are expected, I think, as those who've been given intellects, uh, to use critical thinking, to use our brains uh, as we navigate these difficult things. Um, next is the letter C. We need to do this in community. And in, as individuals, we do not have enough perspective uh, God has brought us together for a reason. We need the community. Uh, so C, community. So S, spirit. E, experience. A, ancestors. R, reason. C, community. And finally, H is humility. Um, if we let, uh, if we give into pride, uh, it is 
unlikely uh, that we will do this well. Even if we get the answers right, we might apply uh, the solution or the, might apply this in ways that are just pastorally monstrous. Um, and so we need to be humble enough to recognize that we're wrong and humble enough to recognize uh, that um, following Christ might be difficult. And the, the practices or beliefs we come to might be calling people to carry their cross. And so we do that with, a, with compassion and humility. So that's a lot for this kind of opening day. Um, but ideally, by the end of this class, uh, my hope is not that we have the answers to all these eight topics, although I do hope to give better answers. But I also hope that, that this trains us um, to, to have better instincts uh, so that wherever culture leads, whatever issues might come up, we learn to navigate this in ways that are faithfully Christian whether than, wh rather than in ways that are um, less than Christian.